Matthew 13, starting with verse 24. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. So that when the plants came up and bore grain, um, then the weeds appeared as well. And the slaves of the householder came to him and said, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? And he answered them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he replied, No, for in gathering the weeds you will uproot the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow until the harvest. And at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, Collect the weeds first and then bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples approached him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are collected and burned up with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will collect out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all evildoers. And they uh, will throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Let anyone with ears listen. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that you would open our ears today, that we might hear this lesson and in response speak truth into our own lives and into the world to which you have called us. This we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. A hundred years ago tomorrow, July 28th, 1914, World War I began. By the end of it, Four years later, there would be 17 million people dead and 20 million people wounded. Men, women, and children, all. And it all began with the assassination of one man, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, uh, by these Slavic nationalists who wanted an independent South Slavic nation, later called Yugoslavia. And desiring what they would call justice, no doubt, and, and wanting to bring that about, they unleashed on the world one of the bloodiest conflicts in history. And World War I, you students of history probably know, would lead to the bloodiest century in the history of the world. More people died in the 20th century than in any other. And most of that killing we can trace directly back to World War I. Without World War I, we wouldn't have had World War II. Uh, it is what unleashed... Uh, Hitler on the world, in a sense. And Hitler would kill 12 million people in the Holocaust by itself, uh, including two-thirds of the Jewish population of Europe, six, six million Jews. Altogether, 15, uh, 50 to 80 million people would be killed in World War II. 50 to million, 80 people. Can you even imagine? When our estimates vary about to 30 million people, and that's just staggering when you think about the lives lost. And without World War I, without the actions of this little uh, rebellion in later Yugoslavia, it wouldn't have happened. 
And without World War I, uh, we wouldn't have had the rise of communism, most likely. World War I gave rise to Bolshevism uh, in Russia and gave rise in turn to communism in Russia. And communism in the 20th century killed its estimated 90 million people all over the world. 90 million people. The bloodiest century in the history of the world. And it can all be traced back to these guys who decided he would, they would pluck out this weed. And when they plucked out the weed, all of this wheat came with them. The lives of mil- tens, even hundreds of millions of people who had nothing to do with it were ruined and lost. Last week we talked about what do we say in response to a world that's full of evil. What do we say about a world that's so fragile that one murder, one assassination can unleash all of this devastating chaos? And we asked this question last week, and the answer or the beginning of an answer that we heard in the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the yeast is that God's kingdom grows in these unexpected and uncontrollable and even, uh, and even insidious ways, and that we have to wait with patience and expectation to be a part of that growth. And our lesson today from the parable of the wheat and the weeds and then its explanation in turn you know, it surrounds these two shorter parables, and it has a similar lesson to us. And it's, it's the call to be patient while we await God's judgment. To be patient while we await God's judgment. You know, so often uh, when we talk about judgment, we get this knot in our stomach. And we think of judgment and we think of it fearfully. And, you know, you'll see these guys on television with these... Uh, crazy predictions about the end of the world, and, and we approach it with, with trepidation, with fear. And, and there's anxiety in Christian circles about you know, what's going to happen when God comes and judges. And perhaps that's because in our own hearts we know that we're not totally right, that we, that we aren't always doing the right things, that there's sin in our lives, and we, and we shrink at this idea of God's judgment. But if you're oppressed... If there are things that are wrong in the world, if you're longing for justice, what you want is judgment. You want God to come and set things right. And that's the position of many, many people in our world. Words of judgment like that aren't heard in the same way in the third world where they say, yes, God, please come and judge. Our situation is terrible. And much the same for for ancient Israel. When they called for God's judgment and imagined God's judgment, what they imagined is that God would finally come and make things right. God would finally come and make things right. When we talk about the kingdom of God, that's part of what we're talking about. If you go back and read the Psalms, and I actually, I recommend that you, man, get into the Psalms. They're, they're absolutely amazing and a, and a wonderful resource for prayer. The particular pattern of prayer that I use, I call it a daily office, um, incorporates the Psalms on a regular basis. So you go through them on a cycle. And you don't have to use that exact method, but but I encourage you, get into the Psalms and, and really study them and read them. Use them as a prayer resource because it puts you in tune. Um, it puts you in tune to Scripture. It puts you in tune with God. But in the Psalms, God's judgment is something to be desired and called for and longed for. It's not something to worry about. You want it to come. You're worried because you don't have judgment right now. Here's what the Psalms say about judgment. Psalm 9 
8, he judges the world with righteousness. He judges people with equity. Psalm 9, 19, rise up, O Lord, do not let mortals prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Psalm 36, 6, your righteousness, God, is like the mighty mountains. Your judgments are like the great deep. You save humans and animals alike, O Lord. Psalm 67, 4, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. You judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Psalm 72, 2, may he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. When you're poor, you want to judge, you want justice. And then my favorite, Psalm 96, comes up on a regular uh, cycle for me as I pray. Uh, say among the nations, the Lord is king. The world is firmly established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming. He is coming to judge the earth. He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. When you don't have, when things aren't right, what you need is righteousness and what you need is a judge to make things right. Um, Something is wrong. You need a judge. You need something to be right. And even we in a country that by historical standards is comparatively just and by the global standards is pretty pretty well off and just. We have this innate need. We know that we need judgment. And if you have any doubt of this, all you have to do is go home in the middle of the day and turn on network television. Because what you will find, I guarantee you, and you know where I'm going, I can tell you, is a judge show. It's going to be Judge Judy or the People's Court or Judge whoever. I can't even remember all their names because there's so many of them. We just, I mean, I think it's in our guts. We know we need a judge and we want somebody to come and fix all these problems and make things right. And we even enjoy watching the judgment. Go home, you'll see it. There's a judge show on at every hour of the day because I think in our guts we know that justice is needed. But here's the problem. We want justice, but, but God's judgment doesn't always come on our timetable. And that, in fact, that's why the Psalms call for it. They're saying, God, come and judge, because it seems like God sometimes isn't. And in the parable that Jesus tells here about the weeds and the wheat, the slaves, I mean, they're the most interesting character to me because I, I see myself in them. And what do they do? As soon as they discover these weeds, they say uh, to the owner, well, do you want us to pluck them out? We'll pluck out these weeds. We're going to fix it. And I think some of us go a step farther and say, oh, you say an enemy sowed these weeds. Maybe we should go and get that guy. Let's go get him. You know, let's go assassinate the archduke. Let's go uh, get this evil nation. Let's go put the bad people in jail. Let's kick the sinners out of the church. You know, let's go set everything right. We're going to put the good over here and the bad over here, and it's all going to be good, and we figured it out, and we're good, right? And that's our mindset. But the householder in this parable, he tells them to wait. He says, if you do that, if you try to you know, parse out all the good over here, all the bad over here, what you're going to wind up doing is destroying a lot of good alongside of it. Now, we think, you know, we think we're clever than first century farmers. Yeah, we've got these fancy herbicides. We can go, you know, we can spray and we'll kill the bad weeds and keep the stuff that's resistant to it that we want and we'll, you know, we'll be good, right? And we think that we can figure it out because we don't learn the lesson from this parable. And we think that we can uh, make everything right just on our own power. 
that we can figure it out for ourselves, that we can, um, that we can bring about justice even. But as Tom Petty would say, you know, the waiting is the hardest part. We hate to wait. We hate to wait on God's judgment. But it's what we have to do if we're going to be in tune with the way that God actually works. Um, so often, and good and evil, as Paul, you said so well, are right, they're right there with each other. They're intertwined with each other. And, uh, and we have to recognize that in our world. And it's not something that we can just fix on our own. It's something that God has to fix. And if we try to engineer it on our own, we wind up oftentimes doing um, a lot, a lot of harm. Uh, I was thinking about this the other day, and, and hopefully I haven't, I might have told this story or told this little anecdote before, um, and hopefully I, I'm too young to be telling the same stories over and over again already, so hopefully I haven't. Um, but when I was in, at Vanderbilt, uh, one of, actually two of my classes met out at the maximum security prison in Nashville, Riverbend Maximum Security Prison. Half the class was Vanderbilt students, half the class was uh, prisoners in the maximum security prison. And to get to the point where they trusted you enough to take one of these classes, you had to have been in there for a while. So these are folks who had done terrible, terrible crimes. Murders, rapes, um, you know, robberies, terrible things. Um, and of course, they needed to be in jail. I'm not saying that they didn't. I mean, these aren't folks that I would want out on the street. But as I met some of them and got to talking to them, I realized how much... Uh, their lives, even in prison, were still intertwined with good people on the outside. These are oftentimes, they worried about what was happening to their families uh, because their children, who had nothing to do with their crimes, um, were left without a father, were left without income. And, of course, we need jails, and we can't base our whole you know, judicial system based off this one parable. But, uh, and these folks, like I say, they needed to be in jail. But the reality in our world is that the good and the bad are right there together. And sometimes we make necessary judgments that we need to, say, put a person in prison. Um, but we shouldn't imagine that that doesn't have consequences for good people as well. Good and evil, right there, mixed in together. And when you think about uh, your own life, I think you'll realize, and perhaps this is some of the reason we're nervous about the idea of judgment, is that good and evil is right there side by side in your own heart. Uh, Alexander Solhenitsyn was a Russian writer and dissident who spent a considerable amount of time in the gulag in Siberia. And uh, he was, in fact, I mean, one of the, you could say, one of the long consequences of the assassination of the Archduke, the plucking of this weed, was the wheat of Alexander Solhenitsyn winding up in prison. And he wrote this book called The Gulag Archipelago about his experience in prison. And, of course, you'd think that this guy, he knows evil and he knows good, right? He's a good guy and the communists are bad guys, right? And, and you'd think that he would want everything to be sorted out. Just put the evil guys over here and the good guys over here. But he writes this, If only it were so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But here's, here's the key part. But the dividing line between good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. The dividing line between good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? 
think we know this. I think we know that we do evil. We sin. And if we were to try to root out evil by our own efforts, we would uh, destroy ourselves. And if God were simply to come and root out all evil right now, it would destroy us alongside it. But God, that's not the way that God operates. God forbears. God waits on bringing his final judgment, and we are awaiting that judgment. He waits because he loves us, and he wants to give us the gift of being able to respond to the grace that he has extended to us in Christ. Um, I quoted this last week, but uh, it's worth quoting again. I'm sure not everybody has it memorized yet. So, Second uh, Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. God is patient with us as a gift to us. But God doesn't just leave us waiting. He just doesn't leave us over here and we're going to wait and God stays a long way away. That's not the way that God works. God waits alongside of us. The same God who will set everything right at the end is present with us even right now while we groan and long for God to come and make things right. Um, This is one of my favorite passages right here. In fact, one of my three favorite scriptures, along with Habakkuk 2.14, which of course is everyone's favorite uh, Bible verse, uh, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I will preach a sermon on that one day. I love it. And in Revelation uh, 21 where God, uh, where it said, that, uh, behold, I make all things new. And then Romans 8.19, we'll see it here in just a second. This is a long passage, but I'm never going to feel bad about reading a lot of Paul. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed in us. This is it. For the creation waits in eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. Creation waits in eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. Creation itself, the earth itself, can't wait for God. It just wants God to come and set things right. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but of the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we await for adoption the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, so what what do we have now? The creation waits. The creation is waiting on God to come and make things right. And we, along with the rest of the world, are waiting on God to come and make things right. And who waits with us? And here you have it. Likewise, the Spirit, uh, the very Spirit, intercedes with signs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Creation groans, and we groan, and God groans with us while we wait for Him to come and sort out our tangled up wheat and weeds. But this parable, it doesn't lead us, leave us just wanting to know what the next step is. It gives us a vision of what it will look like when God makes things right. Uh, Tom Wright says that we wait with patience, not like people in a dark room wondering if anyone will ever come with a lighted candle, 
but like people in the early morning who know that the sun has arisen and that we are now waiting for the full brightness of midday. We wait because we have a vision of what it will be for God to make things right. Verse 41, the Son of Man will send His angels and they will collect out of His kingdom all causes of sin and evil and all evildoers. All causes of sin. And they will throw them into the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Let anyone with ears listen. All causes of sin. That includes the causes of sin in your and my hearts that can be forgiven because of God's grace to us in Christ. And all evildoers will be collected out. God's final judgment results in the exclusion of some people, yes. But we who are saved by faith in Him, we also experience a judgment. A judgment that brings us into wholeness. A judgment that makes it possible for us to be who God has made us to be. A a judgment that's going to shake up the wheat and clean it up. And you, yes, yes, you, the ones who know the evil places in your heart, will have the opportunity to shine like the sun. And this is not a this is not a sun through clouds. This is the bright sun of a Middle Eastern desert. The sun that you can't possibly escape. A sun that is bright and strong and and just full of glory. And when we shine like that, it is the world that benefits. God created us. When you go back to Adam and Eve, they were created to uh, govern the earth, to reflect God's glory, to be the image of God in the world, to reflect God's glory into the world, and then to reflect back to God the creation that God had made. And so when we are made right at the end, when Christ returns, then we can help the world. We can be the ones who lead the world in worshiping God as we should. Uh, we just sang Love Divine, All Love's Excelling. And the last stanza there is one of my favorite lines uh, at the beginning of it. It says, Finish then thy new creation, pure and spotless let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee. Change from glory into glory. That's, that's the image. That we would be a new creation. That God would work in us something new. And that is what we are waiting on. What's it look like to wait like that? Um, one of the things I think it means for us is that we have to learn to be a people who are patient and who know how to reflect God's waiting with us and the, the forgiveness that comes as a part of that because we wait in our judgment because we are confident that we can trust God to make things right. Yeah, you know, I, I get like I drive around and I get all these ideas, uh, and I say, "Oh, right, we need a, uh, you know, we need a GED program, and we need a, a, a you know, like a jobs bank for folks, and we're gonna we're gonna help people get off drugs." And I have all these all these plans, you know, that I get excited about what the church is gonna do, and those are good things, perhaps. But I so often get ahead of myself and I get overconfident. I think that I can fix all the problems. Just me and my lonesome, right? I don't need, I don't need God to really got it. And I have to slow myself down and be patient and remember that I need to learn from you all. I need to learn from the community. And I need to wait on God through those things to be able to teach me and guide me. And even more, I think it it relates to our character and how, how we might reflect the God who is patient with us 
in our lives and in our communities. Um, one of my favorite professors is a guy named Miroslav Volf. I mean, I only know him through through reading, but um, he was a, a he's a Croat. Uh, he grew up in the former Yugoslavia, and his father was a Pentecostal pastor, and that put him at odds with the communist government. Um, Volf himself was grilled on occasion by the by the communist regime when he was conscripted into the military. And um, his family was suspect. But when he was one years old, uh, his, and his brother was five, his brother would often sneak off and he would go and he would play with the uh, Yugoslav soldiers. And they treated him, they treated him well. And he would come and he'd, and he'd, he'd play with them. Those were different days then. And one day his brother went and was... One of the soldiers saw him and took him, and he put him back up on the this cart, this horse-drawn cart, and just playing with him. Um, and the boy uh, had an accident. He he reached out of the cart and wound up being crushed, and he died. And of course, Wolf's parents were devastated, just devastated. How could they not be? And Wolf, in reflecting back on this, he says he asked his mother. You know, what did they do? And his mother said that she knew immediately what they had to do, and that was to forgive the soldier. And so his father went and met with the soldier, who was so distraught over this that he had to be hospitalized. And he prayed with him, and he, he told him that he forgave him. Both asked his mom, how did you all do that? And his mom said it was the hardest thing that they ever did. Hardest thing that they ever did. Several decades later, Wolf is this great theologian and professor, and he's giving a lecture and he's lecturing now in light of the Yugoslav conflict that's broken out and people have been uh, killing each other and um, the Serbian-led regime has been oppressing um, the ethnic minorities in Yugoslavia. And he gives this lecture on how Christians need to embrace their enemies on the basis of Christ's love for us while we were still his enemies. That we, as people, are calling us to love our enemies. We talked about that with the parable of the Good Samaritan. And then Volf's PhD advisor, another theologian named Jürgen Moltmann, he asked Volf after his lecture, can you embrace a Chetnik? Chetnik was one of the Serbian fighters who had been sowing desolation all over Volf's native country. They'd been putting people in concentration camps. They'd been stealing and raping. They had been killing people left and right. They'd been burning down churches and destroying cities. And he just got asked by his friend and professor if he could embrace one of these people. And Wolf was silent for a moment, and then he said, no, I can't. But I think as a follower of Christ, I ought to be able to. That understanding that he has, that he's not quite there, but that he's called to that, I think that is so many of our positions. We know what God has called us to. We know the kind of patience and grace and forgiveness that he has uh, called us to. We're not quite there. But my prayer for us individually and as churches is that we might learn how to be that kind of people in our community. And my request to you all 
is to help teach me what does that look like here? What does that look like in Tremont? What would it look like for us to be the place where people know forgiveness and grace, the God who reaches out to us while we are his enemies and is patient with us, waiting for us to respond to his grace? Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would teach us to be patient. We pray that you would, through your grace and through your son's death on our behalf, make us into a new creation that can so thoroughly trust in you that we might await your judgment and that we might wait while our world is groaning and reflect to to it what it means for you to wait with it. Lord, all this we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.